We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food. Order today, 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will ring in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Monday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Please remember, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. That's how you spell the last name. You can like us on Facebook. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. It'll be a little bit different this week. Our producer, Aaron, is gone, so that means everybody else gets to talk a little bit more. Uh, weekend news and views here is going to be a little bit different as well because there's, there's really only one issue that, that dominated the weekend. And we're going to get into that here in just a moment because I, I think it, it's going to require it's going to require us to look at these sorts of confrontations differently than we have in the past. Because, you know, in, in the past when they just might have been grist for the mill, sauce for the goose, uh, might have just been something for talk show hosts like me to rail about for 15 minutes when they needed to fill a segment. But it was full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The, the environment has changed. And the players are vastly different. And I, I think, especially when you have the next president of the United States reacting to these things personally, 
I, I think I think clearly the dynamic will be different when we have these controversies involving celebrities, especially because our next president is one himself. So we'll get to that here in just a few moments. Kim is here tonight filling in for Aaron. I want to begin, though, with a couple of other examples of what we'll be talking about here next segment. It is, well, I was going to say it's surprising to me, but I'm going to edit myself. It shouldn't be. You know, we like to say on our program here, no man can rise above his own worldview. And when your worldview begins and ends with the self, it's all about you. You're not capable of moving beyond that. You'll need some sort of new wiring to come in. New programming. A rebirth, if you will, to give you a different or radically altered perspective. That causes you to take a step back and think, you know, I'm not a unique snowflake. I'm not the most important being in the universe. There's more here than just the sum totals of my desires, whims, and emotions. There's more happening here. Something else cosmic is going on other than what, what, what Maslow's hierarchy of needs says I require at this moment. But again, you're limited by what you believe. Every human being in God's creation works the following way. Your faith is the foundation of your beliefs. Your beliefs will then dictate your emotions, responses, and reactions in each situation. And those emotions, reactions, and responses and behaviors will then bring us full circle into testifying to the world around you in whom or what you place your faith. That is a philosophical law of the universe. We all think this way because we all come from the same gene pool. Where we are radically different is what we punch in to each of those components. That's where the differences lie. And when that, But when that worldview begins and ends with the self, there's going to be a lot of me <laughs> on that circle in between those two poles. And this is why we continue to see our friends on the left learn all the wrong lessons from this last election. In fact, over the last couple of days, it appears as if a couple of them even believe that the reason they got spanked by a reality TV star in the last election is because they weren't condescending enough, if you can believe it. I want you to meet Melinda Byerly. She is a CEO and, at, of a, and, and she's a CEO of a marketing and advertising consulting firm out there in San Francisco. And then there's this gentleman named Derek Keith Rollins Jr. He is a vocalist and songwriter from Minneapolis. These are people who, while professing themselves to be wise, are not so much. These are fools. But you won't have to take my word for it. Their own words will prove it so. Byerly, who of course is white, found her way onto the social media scene over the weekend by lecturing Middle America with this sentence, and I quote, this was a post of hers that went viral. One thing you could do is realize that no educated person wants to live in the S-hole with stupid people. 
talking about middle America, rural America. But she just reeks, reeks of tolerance, doesn't she? Or maybe she just reeks. I mean, why wouldn't you want to take sage advice from someone who's as unempathetic as Melinda Byerly? She goes on to say that corporations like hers only want to bring jobs to flyover country uh, if you do things like, quote, elect a progressive city council and commit to not being bigots, unquote. Because she says there's a lot of progressives out there that would love to live in a less urban setting, but they are deterred by your riffraff. That you are, quote, still voting for things that are against your own self-interest because you don't want brown people to thrive, unquote. Now, having lived in these middle American hellholes all of my life, let me just say, the issue, Melinda, is not brown people. It is you people. Uh, It is people like you. You have this pathological reverence for diversity, all the while claiming everybody must think and believe like you. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? Like rain on your wedding day or a free ride when you've already paid. Not to mention the entire economic premise of her little diatribe is without merit. It is just factless. You look at her own Bay Area where she lives. The leftist utopia of the Bay Area, as we speak, is approaching record poverty levels in the history of that community. And all under the so-called recovery of Comrade Obama. California right now is is a progressive orgy. It's not even a state. It's a progressive orgy. It's where they it's where progressivism just comes together and indulges itself. And when the and when the lust is spent, they pop a couple of purple pills in order to medically induce another state of arousal. And they just progressive and decadent away some more. They deny themselves literally nothing. Nothing from the progressive menu. And yet here in the Bay Area, which is the capital of this leftist Valhalla, they are approaching record poverty levels. Why? How come more people are moving to middle American hellhole Texas than any other state? And by the way, can you guess which state is losing most, the most popular, the most of its population in Texas? Come on, take a guess. Come on. That's right. It's California. Texas has imported more former Californians than any other state in the union. Why? Because when you're not consumed with stealing other people's money, calling people names just simply because they disagree with you, you suck at governing. That's pretty much the mantra here. And then there's this Rollins character. Now, he's from here in my backyard in central Iowa. He wrote an op-ed over the weekend with his fake wisdom. Rollins bases his contention were all racists off of the fact you may have supported a campaign, quote, of hatred toward women, their children, people of color, the elderly, prisoners of war, veterans, immigrants, people that aren't Christian, and especially the environment, unquote. Now, let's set aside the fact for just a moment that uh, a woman actually in in Trump's campaign became the first uh, female uh, presidential campaign winner ever, Kellyanne Conway. 
Uh, let's set aside for the fact the elderly voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. And let's set aside for a fact uh, the, the fact that veterans voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump as well. So already there's holes in his methodology here. But there's a bigger problem. See, Rollins fails to mention that our home state of Iowa is the number one reason Barack Obama became president of the United States. If he doesn't win, if he doesn't upset Hillary Clinton here in the Iowa caucuses eight years ago, he never wins the presidency. We still don't have the first black president. And our state voted overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly for Obama in 08 and 012. So what changed? Did we import a whole bunch of racists since 2012? We'll discuss that here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Bruce Jenner's favorite program. Call me Caitlin. This is Steve Dace. So I'm fascinated by this notion that this Mr. Rollins here thinks we here in Iowa are a bunch of racists because our state voted for Donald Trump in the last election. But yet the state, which is about 97% white, launched America's first black president to the presidency by giving him that first key win in the caucuses here eight years ago and voted overwhelmingly for him twice in two general elections. So what's changed in just the last few years? Did we import a bunch of racists? Well, that's not the case. We live in a dwindling population state. In fact, we've lost a seat in Congress since I started doing radio here. We're not importing really anything in Iowa. We're losing population. What's happening here is these people are pagan windmill tilters. And they are guilty of creating the very phenomenon they are now blaming others for. The reason we are on the verge of a Trump presidency, the number one reason, are people like this. The backlash to them is more responsible for launching Trump's candidacy and insulating him from almost any scrutiny, even justifiable, is people like this. And their pseudo-religion of political correctness that we are all sick and tired of. Tired of watching athletes like Colin Kaepernick who have so many shoes, they have whole rooms in their mansions devoted to just pairs of shoes. Kneeling during the national anthem to lecture the rest of us. Tired of watching the insanity on our college campuses. Tired of watching the insanity in our schools. The people that Miss Miss Byerly and Mr. Rollins support, they have wreaked havoc on our inner cities, turned them into urban cesspools all too often. They have presided over the systemic collapse of the nuclear family in this country. And they have turned our schools into self-esteem parlors for the criminally mind-numbed. Where year after year, our kids rank amongst the worst in the industrialized world in science and math, but the highest in self-esteem. So our kids are dumb, but they feel real good about it, so that's okay. 
Because a lot of Americans, including people who are scared to death about the prospect of Donald Trump having access to the nuclear football for the next four years, as much as they're scared of that, they are sick and tired of being misconstrued, mistaken, being maligned, as ill-equipped, as systemically racist, all because they think it's a bad idea for American to, America to have more people on food stamps than the population of Spain. When you see the world the way that these people do, the only system that really needs changing is theirs, along with their diaper. The amount of whining from these people, you want something systemic, that is systemic, the whining. And, and I'm opening up the show with this tonight, not because, well, I hope you're entertained, but this isn't some rant, uh, this isn't tongue-in-cheek. Every one of us, at some point in our lives, we needed somebody to break their foot off in our backsides for us to come correct. These people are beyond requiring beyond overdue for a spanking. They have gotten everything they could possibly want. We're now saying online the the so-called party of science is now writing articles about men having children and menstruation cycles. Okay? I don't know what there's left to give. But the only thing left to do is to shut all the churches down. And if they just hang out for a little while, most of the churches are going to shut themselves down just fine if you look at what's going on demographically. They're being given everything they could ever want. The last few years, they had one of their own poster children, one of their own ideological offspring with the largest bully pulpit on the planet, and yet they are still not satisfied. Why? How come they can't seemingly vent their frustration and their disagreement with anything less than a whiny lament? Why? Why do they come across as children? Because when I was a child, I thought, spoke, and reasoned as a child. And when I became an adult, I set aside childish things. We are back to the worldview question again. They can't rise above their own worldview. They have a worldview that says the apex of existence is their own actualization. Therefore, anything that gets in the way of them being actualized is bad. Not by any objective moral framework, mind you, defining good or bad or pre-existing one, but whatever denies them that which they want at the time. And it doesn't even require facts. I can be a CEO in San Francisco where we are approaching record poverty levels and lecture the rest of you in middle America with a lot lower poverty than we have in San Francisco. 
a lot fewer homeless than we have in San Francisco. A lot fewer grimy streets with cigarette butts up and down, up and down the crevices if you've been to San Francisco lately, and I have. Somehow, though, I'm gonna, I, I block all of that out and lecture you. Reality be damned. Mr. Rollins wants to lecture my home state for being a bunch of racists when we're the primary reason we had a black president. Barack Obama doesn't win the Iowa caucuses. He never wins the presidency. We voted for him twice overwhelmingly in our state. And now we're racists? What changed? For too long, for too long, we have fed this. We are as responsible for this, I believe, as they are. We have allowed cowardly politicians to subsidize it. We have run away from these confrontations. We have not wanted to deal with it. We have been the parent who knows the child requires discipline, but isn't willing to provide it. Because it's hard. It's messy. I don't want the drama. And then we're shocked when the kid just continues to act out to the point one day we come home from work and the cop car is in the driveway. What's he done? What did you do? You never told him no. Now, this last election, as flawed of a vehicle as Donald Trump is, if anything good comes of it, I hope it is a sign that the adults are finally willing to say no. No. We won't do this anymore. You're listening to Steve Dace. Train the Swamp, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. All right, now that we've delivered a much-needed spanking, let, let's, let's engage in the sort of self-assessment that we were just criticizing some of our friends on the left for not being willing to do. Let's not be hypocrites, and let's do it ourselves. So Todd and Kim, we kind of have this MO here on the right. Stop me if you've heard this stuff before. Nobody cares what celebrities think. They're all a bunch of liberals. Nobody pays attention to what they think. These are people who pretend to be other people for a living and just desire some form of relevancy. So all their, all their hot takes are dumb, vacuous, ill-informed, and it has no influence on the culture really at all. Is that, is that pretty much been the MO for those of us here on the right and how we've responded for the last couple of decades to celebrity political ranting? I've heard that. Yeah, we say it, but we say it so much. Do we really believe it? Well, I want to make sure we don't create our own echo chamber. Okay, so over the weekend, the big story, and this would be when Aaron is here, this is normally when we do weekend news and views, but really, if you watched what's trended all day long today and the way the world's reacted to it, um, uh, this is particularly on social media, the number one story is Meryl Streep's outburst last night at the Golden, Golden Globes. Now, full disclosure, I've not watched it. I'm trying to remember the last time I've seen a Meryl Streep movie. It's been a while. And I've not watched an awards show since the 1992 Academy Awards where two things happened. I was sitting in my dorm, Wonders Hall at Michigan State University, 
two things happened. One, I watched Richard Gere go on for like 20 minutes about the Dalai Lama and refused to leave the stage. <laughs> I remember that. And the other was they were lamenting the cuts in drama programs around the, around the country in public schools. And I looked at the gross domestic product of all those assembled there that evening and thought, you know, if y'all just pass the hat once, we take care of these drama programs real quick like. And that was my tap out moment. Right. So I'm a pop culture guy. It's the generation I grew up in. But I I can't handle the self-righteousness, the sermonizing from the other side. Uh, and, and, And I don't want to think about other people the way that these shows make me think. So it's best for me just to stay away. And that's been my M.O. for 25 years. And it has done me well. Okay, But this went viral last night. And so I'm last night. I'm watching Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, because it's one of the greatest movies ever. Best death scene ever? Can you think of a better one? Is, it, is that the best death scene of all time? It's in the conversation. If we ever did top five death scenes, ship it's not, out of danger is, in, is on that list. It's not Han Solo and Force Awakens. It's not that, no. no. It's a little anticlimactic, actually. So I'm watching one of the greatest movies of all time, produced or directed by Nicholas Meyer, University of Iowa graduate, in case you didn't know that, by the way. And I'm, and I'm following what's trending on social media with Meryl Streep's diatribe last night. And, if, and, and you guys have talked before. I like to follow people on the other side as well, provided they're somewhat critical thinkers. Because it also, one, it gives me a chance to know what the other side thinks. And two, it's, it gives me a chance via Twitter to know what the other side thinks without having to long form consume their thoughts, right? I can, I can quickly right. kind of get the gist of it. And it really was like two Americas. I mean, it really was. It really was like two Americas, two different people that are claiming to be one people listened to this woman's lament and had polar opposite reactions to it. Now, I don't think anybody is shocked that a Hollywood award show became a haven for a liberal rant. If anything, the only... The, the only thing that is surprising about that statement is that I used a singular form. I mean, it's, it's a haven for rants, plural. It's rants, it's, it's tubbo rants. It's rants by the moment, right? I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. What is and, and in the past, Todd, you've been on our show now for going on a year and a half. Have we ever, can you think of a time, maybe we have, I don't know. More right? than two years. Has it been more than two years it's now? It's been more than two years. So can you think of a time that I have spent any amount of intellectual capital responding to any of these any of these things? Oh, I mean, just, it, you like to play with them. Other than but poking, I, poking, yes. poking the bear. Can Kim, I mean, can you? No. I, cause there's, there's not a number in recorded mathematics, no integer negative enough to adequately describe how little I care. So I just, I don't care. But we, the reason this continues to be the big story today is because the next president of the United States chose to respond to it directly. Um, his, was uh, there any doubt? His, his senior advisor, Kellyanne Conway, was responding to it uh, on cable news this morning, some of which she said I liked, pointing out, hey, if Meryl Streep really wanted to help the disadvantaged, why didn't she speak up for the mentally disadvantaged man who was bullied and tortured and beaten on Facebook Live last week? That was a good point. On the other hand, when she said we should pay attention to what Trump actually does, not what's in his heart, well, the Bible says it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. There's not a disconnect between those things. One leads to the other, right? 
And so this leads me to where I want to go with this next. I want to get you guys' take on it. Because I think these things do matter now more than they ever have before. I'll explain why in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. For Patriots, the Steve Day Show. All right, so in the past, we've had this MO. We either mock or are dismissive and move on. And if a talk show host like me needs a segment or two to kill, he'll rant for 10 minutes responding to what celebrities say at these award shows. And, and haha, nobody cares. We move on. However, consider this fact. Of the four Republicans that have won the presidency since Watergate, Two of them were celebrities. Ronald Reagan, movie star, still the only president to ever be the former president of a union, the Screen Actors Guild. Donald Trump, reality TV star. And when you look at Trump responding directly now to Meryl Streep, which, which the traditional way of looking at this is to say, why would he do this? Why feed this? Why give these people relevancy? But I don't think we're living in this environment anymore, are we? One, asking Trump not to respond to a direct attack on him by somebody with a big platform is like asking a tiger not to attack an ant- a wounded antelope that you put in a cage with it. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the nature of the beast. You're asking Trump to not be himself. You're asking an alpha male not to respond. Yeah, I mean, just... Just let it go. And, and that's just the reality of the situation. The question then becomes... Is it good for him to respond? Is there a way to respond that betters his cause? Because I'd like to think that there's a strategy here, right? Because Trump's base loves to loathe people like Meryl Streep. Every bit as much as Meryl Streep loves to condescendingly sneer at Trump's base. And so maybe there's an opportunity to say, you know what? Hey, you're helping me fire my base up. Except Trump's been doing this stuff on social media long before he had a base long before he was a candidate. It's in his nature to do. So I do think we need to reevaluate these conflicts. Are they just, is there going to be something substantive here? It's, I think it's, it's, it's odd to make the case nobody cares what celebrities think when a reality TV show host is going to take the oath of office 10 days from now, guys. Okay? It's a little, it just seems odd. to be, We were just making this case about leftist disconnects. Right? This woman from San Francisco, which is approaching record poverty levels. Claiming her city is great and where you live sucks. And this black guy from Ames, Iowa, claiming Iowa's racist because it voted for Trump when it went overwhelmingly for Obama. We, were, we, we pointed out the intellectual disconnect of what they're asserting. Well, we need to make sure on our side we're not guilty of this. right? We, to just say no one cares what Meryl Streep thinks. Guys, a reality TV show guy who, who was a punchline like Snooki two years ago is going to take the oath of office here a week from Friday. Clearly there are people who care what celebrities think, right, Todd? Oh, and I think they always have. But how we move forward, I have, think, has to take into account that we are very much two countries. Let's face it, if we're honest, most of us all care on some level, but we care to the point of hate or we care to the point of joy. I, I, and how you, how you bring together what seems impossible to bring together, I, I, culturally we seem to be at the point of needing to wander 40 years in the desert, and one of these sides is just going to be gone. 
or not. So I don't. You're right, Steve. But I honestly have no idea what to do with that from there when people are just at war with each other. Well, see, you know, with this one, I don't really care what Meryl Streep said. Sometimes with these um, uh, celebrities, what I do is like if they annoy me enough, I'm not going to their movies. That's what I do. I just go, that's just not worth my dollars to support someone with those asinine ideas, right? So, um, but with this, with Trump responding to her, I wish he was a little more artful, but I like how he comes back at it. You know, to say that she's the most overrated actress, I'm not so sure she is. I think she's actually pretty brilliant. Um, a Hillary flunky who lost big, maybe she is a Hillary flunky. I don't know. But a response, I think, could be warranted. And <laughs> Kellyanne actually did a better response when you talked about the the young man that was brutalized. There's probably going to be a lot of Kellyanne did a better response the next four years. Todd, go ahead. Well, furthermore, this, just, this kind of seems like a a side game at recess and then when you go back to class and you start talking about policy i mean really what what does this do at all i mean the, the, do the republicans in congress just sit there yeah let them do their thing and then we go back and we're going to do what we do anyways i mean at the end of the day what does this mean sound and fury signifying nothing does it matter because yes it tickles our ears but does it matter at any core level that's why i'm saying if he does his messaging in a little bit better a little more artfully it could mean something it could actually mean, let's have a dialogue. Let me show you what you're actually doing in your condescension. Um, so it could mean um, that we can no longer have the two countries, the two you know divisions. But you know, if you look at um, what Trump won as far as the counties across the United States, it's more unified in a conservative against this progressive crap that comes out of Hollywood. And Steve, you've lamented many times lately about how much time you've put in to try to get a conservative elected, the people you've backed. Mm -hmm. And and you said at the at election time, you know, it, it came to this. It came to Hillary versus Trump. So And, and you did it over and over and over again. You, there was legitimate meat on the bones of what you tried to do. This, again, this is just hurling feces at each other. Here's my concern. <laughs> yeah, like monkeys in a zoo? <laughs> Here's my concern. You guys tell me if you think this is legit. See... I've been on this kick for the last several months, going on a year now. What is conservatism? What even is it? What are we actually trying to conserve? What, is this, what does any of this mean? Because it seems as if we are, we are merely defined as an opposition to the existing progressive uh, worldview. That, that we, we're not really for anything objective. We're just against the, their media. We're against their, uh, what they do on our college campuses. We're against them using government to fund their constituencies. That, that we are merely in opposition to them. But, but what, are we a, what are we a proponent actually of? And to what you were just saying, Todd, my concern is the amount of interest that this, incur that this confrontation between Trump and Meryl Streep is going to create far in a way will exceed the amount of scrutiny that will go on in conservative media about are the Republicans really serious about defunding Planned Parenthood or not? Or is this a parliamentary game? Are they, what, what's, what, are they really repealing Obamacare or not? You know what I'm saying? Stuff that really matters. Stuff that really matters. But my fear is 
Really, we're not defined by what we're for. We just can't stand these celebrities sanctimoniously lecturing us. And, and, and as long as Trump comes on Twitter and slaps him around a little bit, we don't give what, we don't give two rips with the Republic, what, what, what vows that's in it. Congress the Republicans break. That's my concern. That's it. You think that that's a legit concern? Absolutely valid concern. But I think they can use that to bring out these ideas of why progressives fail and what conservatism is. But you need somebody who's a conservative yes. to make that case. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Never attack what you're not willing to kill. This is Steve Dace. This is the double-edged sword of what we've been talking about. You know, we, we've mentioned the good of Trump's persona. Like when he wants to put uh, an anti-junk uh, science crusader like Scott Pruitt as the, head of the G- as the head of the EPA. And in the past, the narrative that would have surrounded that might have engulfed a, a, a typical Republican who tried to make an appointment like that. But Trump can just tweet some kind of idle, benign, no, one, no chance of happening threat against some corporation on Twitter at 9 a.m. And Scott Pruitt never heard of the guy. The whole media just follows along with Trump. And, and here comes Scott Pruitt, camel nose, camel's nose under the tent, slides on in there without almost no scrutiny, right? We, that's the good. The double-edged sword of this, though, is this stuff. And I can see, I mean, Trump is what he is. This is his persona, right? When I, when I'm, when I'm, this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of the Mitch McConnells of the world using this as their cover to, to continually betray us and getting away with it because too many people that do what we do for a living here, guys, want the clickbait, the easy headline, the easy response, the everybody loves me when I, you know, every it, it, it's all fun and games and we're all together when we're hammering some straw man nobody likes. The sneering, condescending Hollywood leftist. But the real work gets done when we start, when we have to actually hold people accountable, which is one of the reasons I'm proud to work for Conservative Review. We're willing to do that even to the detriment at times of our own relationships, but not a lot of people in our industry are. And we saw that in this last, in this last primary with Trump. We're not going to hold Trump accountable. We're going to just do it with a clickbait. You know, Trump's great. Everywhere's... That's the reality of the industry in which we live, and I'm concerned that they're going to let the Republicans in Congress get away with larceny, Kim, because they're, they would rather talk about stories like this because it's easy pickings, than doing the hard work of advancing whatever it is that we actually believe. Well, I think the truth may lie in the fact that most Republicans actually like Obamacare. Most Republicans like to be lied to. Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, they don't even need this Twitter thing to get people um, distracted. They'll just um, characterize the bill inappropriately. Well, they'll lie about what's in the bill. So I I think we're more in trouble just because the American public isn't actually watching what's happening in Washington, D.C. They're the ones who like the clickbait. Is this where we're supposed to be grateful for Steve Bannon being there? I don't know. To not let this happen? T- tell me what evidence you have of his influence. Tell me, uh, do you see it? 
I don't know. He's not president yet. I don't know. I, and that, well, I think his influence is the fact that he's still pushing for that trillion dollar infrastructure bill thing. So I, it's behind the scenes, but it's there. You know what? Yeah. I'm going to see if we can. I, I think the chances are slim and none. But the proverb says one man's story seems true until you hear the other side. I've got some connections with him. I, I'm going to see if we can't get an interview with him. Just to, and, and let him tell his side of the story and just react to what he thinks. Hour two is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here tonight on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. We are joined at the top of this hour by uh, one of our favorites. Dr. Michael Brown is here, fellow talk show host, theologian, pontificator. He's also an author. He's got a brand new book about uh, about breaking the stronghold of food that we'll be talking about as well, but uh, we want to welcome Michael back here to the Steve Day Show. It's good to have you back, my friend. How are you? Good, man. It's always great to be with you, Steve. Michael, let's take a uh, kind of a big picture view on where things stand in American culture today, and 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 whether you are more optimistic or pessimistic than you were prior to November the seventh, or just as realistic as you ever were. How would you frame that, Michael? Uh, I would say that I tend to be a tremendous optimist all the time, filled with realism, but a tremendous optimist. But my optimism is even more fueled now. I feel even more reason for it. And whether people are happy with Donald Trump's election or not, the fact that it's not Hillary Clinton is very positive. And the fact that we've seen that anything can happen, that shifts in culture can happen, that unexpected things can happen, that, to me, is, is major. That, to me, is, is reason for encouragement. I believe that, that a lot of people were praying for God's mercy and help. I do believe, with all of Donald Trump's uh, weaknesses and, and evident flaws, that there is a bit of a respite uh, in, in many ways in the country. And I think, again, the biggest thing is, is just this sense, hey, the political pundits don't always know what's coming. The talking heads don't always know this what's coming. And many of us conservatives who've been frustrated by the state of things in the society, we feel even more encouraged now. Yeah, we can push back. We can push back. So to me, although I'm an optimist, uh, trying to be realistic, but always with an optimism because of faith in God, it's definitely increased now uh, since the election. I'm glad you went there because I wanted to ask you about this. And, and, and hopefully we know each other well enough to just be brutally honest and nobody's feelings get hurt, okay? Because... I am a little uncomfortable when I hear somebody that I have an immense amount of respect for, but when I hear somebody like Franklin Graham go on national television yesterday and and say that 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 God God made Donald Trump president. Now, listen, I think the scriptures are pretty clear. There is no authority 
on earth except that which God has ordained or permitted for some odd various reasons. And a lot of times at the time, we can't even begin to understand, but all things work together for the glory of God and for those called according to his purposes. I agree with you that this last election would probably be a respite, kind of like a team that calls a timeout in the middle of a basketball game when the other squad's on a run and you're trying to slow their momentum. But but my concern about saying that that somehow that this was, uh, that he is God's anointed, as I've heard some people say, my concern about this is, then then why did then then why did God allow Obama to win? Why 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 did God allow um, a lot of other things that we don't like to happen or things we don't approve of to to take place? I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say, Michael, I am concerned we are telling an, an increasingly theologically ignorant culture. We're sending them signals that it is God's will when it's stuff that we like, and maybe not necessarily stuff that we don't. And really, the true test of faith is not do I praise God when he gives me what I want, but when I, do I praise him when he does not? Am I, do you think I'm overreacting here at all? No, no, you're not overreacting, and you're asking fair questions, because often we can sound superficial and, and triumphalistic, and Donald Trump is our president, raised up by God with all of his flaws, but Barack Obama was not our president and somehow just got in. So on the one hand, Many would say, whoever is president, that's always God's choice. Others would say, no, he's given us the choice in a democratic republic. Here's the way I look at this election. I wrote an article, uh, as, as uh, he was being announced as the, the winner, I had I'd written it that night and then hit send the moment he got confirmed as, as the new president on a couple more websites. That Donald Trump was president by the sovereign hand of God. And I explained in the midst of that, that even though you could say all authority is established by God, there are some things that are so unlikely, there are some things that go against all odds, that it makes you think something was, was happening here. You know, there's a, you know uh, the, the, the football playoffs are in the Super Bowl, and whichever team wins, hey, you know, there are good teams left. But if a high school team uh, won the Super Bowl, we'd say, how, how did that happen? Something unusual happened. So in my view, for Trump... To, to beat the 16 Republicans, including governors and senators and, and strong candidates, for him to beat the Clinton political machine, to take on the media, in the midst of it to make so many stupid mistakes and to have so much baggage, I looked at it that God raised him up, and there were, there were Christian leaders saying along the way, and when I was warning people, don't vote for Trump and all the reasons not to vote for him and all my concerns, and we shared many of those, uh, I was never an official never-Trumper, but boy, during the primaries did I oppose him. Uh, but there were friends of mine that said, no, we believe God's raising him up, even though he's not a Christian, even though he's not one of us as an evangelical. We believe God's raising him up, and he's going to be a divine wrecking ball for everything that's politically correct. Well, the problem with the wrecking ball is if you use it to renovate the house, you destroy the whole house. Mm-hmm. So I, I see God's hand in it. Now, it could also be judgment. In other words, it it, it could be exposing the superficiality of the church. It could be exposing corruption in our midst. Uh, it, it could be exposing our, our political shallowness, or it could be used for good. So I don't feel like this is the kind of thing where St. Donald, the savior of the evangelical church, has been raised up. And that's what I hear from some. I'm not saying Franklin Graham, but that's what I oppose. That's why yeah, we're, some, of our, some of our friends are turning this guy into a 21st century Constantine. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I, what I put out is very clear. 
I am praying for Donald Trump to be a strong president and to help with our economy, to help with security, to appoint good justices, and I am urging the church to do the work of the church because Donald Trump is not called to do the work of the church or to be the savior of the church. And, you know, he is what he is. He's the tweeting president. He's, he's going to do what he does. You know, he may be presidential in one setting and totally unpresidential in another. Uh, I'm not cheering that on. And what concerned me, Steve, was when certain evangelical leaders endorsed him as if he was the saintly man, as opposed to saying, we understand who he is. We understand he doesn't share many of our values in his history. We understand he's, he's not even a, a, a true Christian, although he professes to be. But we believe we need a warrior and a, and a, and a general and someone that's going to stand up, and we just believe he's the right man. That I could see and understand. So to me, I'm, I'm encouraged, but there, it's, we're really hanging in the balance. There's mm-hmm. a lot going on, and I think it's exposing a lot of the, the what's in the Church. And this is, this is going to be a bit of a wrecking ball for the Church, too. Mm-hmm. Agree with everything you just said there. And as somebody that is a pundit and has worked and consulted on campaigns before and analyzes them for a living, you're right. I mean, you can't concoct a, a, a campaign strategy that would get 100,000 people in Michigan to vote who, ne- who didn't vote for president. To get 40,000 people in Milwaukee who voted in 2012 to not show up and vote in 2016 in a state decided by 15,000 votes. I mean, I've described this to my audience before. What Trump did to win is not a replicatable model. It, it couldn't do this mm-hmm. again. doesn't mean he can't be reelected. It just won't be like this. Okay, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, this wasn't lightning in a bottle. And the analogy I've used, Michael, is it's like when you go to the plant and they tell you that you're, we're, this is your last paycheck, we're closing down, and you and the missus decide to go to Vegas and bet it all on black to avoid homelessness one time and it works. That's what happened mm-hmm. on November the 7th. So I'm with you on that, but I, I completely agree with that. I think, though, that we need to be very careful because if, if, we're, if we're not careful in our messaging, we're going to link the character of God with the character of Donald Trump. We're going to say that, that, that if Trump rises and falls, I mean, a lot of people first see an image of God based on what kind of father they had, what kind of lead male figure role model they had in their lives. Well, we're going to handle, handle, hand the guy who does have some baggage. Let's just say that honestly, the biggest bully pulpit on planet Earth. We should be very careful about, uh, about not drawing distinction between his character and God's. He might go in there and be awful. We don't know. And then what do we go on the Sunday morning cable news shows and say? What do we say then? Right. I, I, again, I'd be happy to debate you and argue with you, but I, I agree with you. We've been agreeing with each other. I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and that's why, again, it was the, the way that evangelicals stood with him or endorsed him. That was my issue. One of my friends read to him at a meeting from Isaiah 45 uh, about King Cyrus, who was a Persian king, who we know was an idol worshiper, but who also, uh, his policy was to resettle the exiles that the Babylonians and Assyrians... Michael, scattered. I've got to get to a hard break. Can you finish that thought right there in just a moment when we come back? Dr. Michael Brown, theologian, talk show host at The Firing Line, author is here with us. We'll talk about his new book as well when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. Hoisting them by their own petards. The Steve Day Show. 
All right, back here with Dr. Michael Brown, good friend of the show, theologian, talk show host, author. So, Michael, you were imparting to our audience an anecdote. One of your friends had a chance to read a portion of Scripture from the book of Isaiah to Donald Trump during the campaign. What happened next? Yeah, so it was Isaiah 45. It's speaking about King Cyrus. In the Bible, we know him as the king who said to the Jewish people, uh, go back and build your temple to, to, the, to the God of Israel. And, and even though he was a pagan, we know from what's called the Cyrus Cylinder, which was an ancient um, cylinder that was found with an inscription about King Cyrus. And in that inscription, he's talking about another god that he worships and go back and build that temple. So that was his policy, resettle the exiles, go back to your homeland, build your temple, worship your god, and pass taxes. And that's how they ruled their empire. Well, uh, the fact is, he, he was an idol worshiper himself, and yet God used him and called him his anointed, which is normally reserved for the kings of Israel, to restore the Jewish people. So this friend of mine felt led to read Isaiah 45 and to say to Donald Trump, even, God says, even though you don't know me, I'm going to use you and you'll be the 45th president of the United States. And he thought, what a wild, what a wild word. But he told me about it. I read about it. And even when I was opposing Donald Trump, I said, look, there are these you know, prophetic words. They seem kind of crazy. Maybe they're true. Maybe my role is to sound the warnings and someone else is to say what's going to happen. But even in that context, fine. He, Cyrus was a pagan king used by God for good purposes, but no one called him Saint Cyrus. No one mistook the meaning of anointing there. Mm-hmm. And you are absolutely right. If evangelicals say, hey, this is the most powerful man in the world, and if we can get close to him, pray with him, counsel him, help him make decisions, we want to be there for him. Help him to find God, we want to be there. Absolutely. Uh, if we now look at him uh, as you know this preaching brother and try to justify everything he does or downplay an inappropriate tweet, then we hinder our own witness, and that's where we have to be careful. Use the open door like some of my friends have, to get close with him, to pray with him, to pray with his family, to, to counsel him, to encourage him to do the right thing, to correct him when he says something wrong, uh, but not to make him into St. Donald. And, and then the, the reputation of the Church, which has taken a hit because of this, that we are now associated with Donald Trump, for better or worse. On the other hand, and I just wrote about this last week for Conservative Review, he has done us a favor in how he has blown a hole in the whole, H-U-L-L, of the, uh, of the good ship media leftist industrial complex. I mean, that thing is Titanic, hit an iceberg straight ahead. I mean, we, have, we seemingly have freedom and permission to push back against them, the likes of which we haven't had, Michael, in a long, long time. Yeah, uh, ab- absolutely. And uh, again, there's a lot that's been done by Donald Trump that's good, and he seems to want to to stand for religious freedom i don't think he's he's worked out or even thought through what happened when you have a conflict between quote religious rights and and gay rights uh i don't i don't i don't think he's worked that out uh i don't think he's worked out some other issues but hopefully he will appoint good people to the supreme court he has exposed a lot of the the corruption and the bias in the media he's he's uh, unfortunately it had to come from him to give others backbone to to speak up but that's, again, what a wrecking ball does. If people can just get that image in mind, a divine wrecking ball against everything that's politically correct, but a wrecking ball also wrecks other things that don't need to be wrecked, then I think we can understand the, the man that we, we, we have as our president. And look, I didn't like Barack Obama's policies, but he was my president. 
And I tell fellow Americans, you might not like Donald Trump, but he's your president. That's just the way it works here. Let's close out talking about your new book, Breaking the Stronghold of Food. And what really helped me several years ago when I started losing the weight and getting closer to the way I looked when I was younger is uh, the person who took me aside and helped me caused me to look at the way I was eating holistically, to look at what was what was going on in my life emotionally or spiritually that was causing me to eat or to do things in a way that I was using this almost like self-medication. And I think a lot of times we don't look at food that way, do we? No, we, we just... We just think, okay, I, I eat, you know, I have a problem, I overeat. There's, there's, there are often other factors. First, the foods we eat are terribly addictive. Uh, Dr. Joel Furman, who we quote a lot in our book, said if you, if you eat the standard American diet, you'll get the standard American diseases, basically. And, you know, the, I was addicted to, to chocolate. I, I, I was a drug user before I was a believer in Jesus and, and shot heroin and everything. and was instantly freed from that in 71 when I was 16. I found it harder to give up chocolate in 2014 than to give up heroin in 1971. I'm Hmm. serious about that. But once I broke free from the addictions, which took about three days, I had to reprogram my mind because I realized food was my reward. I I speak day and night. I'm on the road preaching and ministering and lecturing. You get back to the hotel, what do you do? You eat. Mm -hmm. You're at airports constantly. You're fine. You eat, you get to the hotel, and they've got you know fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. That's a gift from God. You eat. Whatever you do, food built in. For some, it's an emotional outlet. For some, they, like for me, it was a reward. For others, you know, they eat out of pain or frustration or fear. But when you step back and recognize, okay, food is supposed to be the fuel for life. In less than eight months, I went from 275 pounds to 180 pounds just by eating only healthy foods, and thriving in the midst of it. Not by dieting, but changing my relationship to food. My cholesterol went from 230 to 123, blood pressure from 149 over 103 to 100 over 65. I used to have three or four headaches a week, haven't had a headache in two and a half years. On and on it goes. I even had severe sleep apnea. I don't need a breathing machine anymore because I lost enough weight that I lost weight in the the back of my throat and the back of my tongue. So it is a matter of changing our relationship to food. And I wrote this book together with Nancy. It opened up on Amazon as the number one book in Christian personal growth. And we're getting blown away by the reports from from readers. Even if someone just goes to Amazon, reads their first reviews, they'll see. We tell our stories. We're honest. We talk about the struggles. And then we talk about changing your relationship to food and practical steps that you can take. And I was the poster boy. I wasn't a glutton, but I was the poster boy for unhealthy eating my entire life for 59 years. And Nancy would characterize herself as a glutton. If we could change, anybody can change. And the way I live now is as if I'm a recovering food addict, that I could easily fall back by eating the wrong things. I don't, need, I don't open that door. I'm not tempted to. I don't desire to. I'm thriving. I'm not deprived. And everyone that hangs out with me is jealous to get my shoes because they see that this is really an effective way to live. And that's what we lay out in Breaking the Stronghold of Food. The name of the book, Dr. Michael Brown, Breaking the Stronghold of Food, available now. You can go to Amazon.com right now and check it out if you want. And Michael is exactly right. As somebody that has, over the course of the last few years, lost about 100 pounds, it is not about dieting. You have to change the way you are willing to live. That's that's the thing. You have to find something 
that you can actually live with that is also good for you. That's the key formula. Otherwise, you run into people that are like, well, you know, I know Weight Watchers works. It, it worked all eight times. I tried it. Well, you, that's the point. Yep, you yep. shouldn't have tried it eight times. But, yeah, you're looking for something that you can reasonably live. Michael, it's always good to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for being with us tonight. Yeah, my joy, Steve. Keep up the great work. All right, take care. That's Dr. Michael Brown. Again, get the book Breaking the Stronghold of Food. You know, I should have asked him before he left. But come on, on Christmas. Christmas, we still enjoyed the holidays, right? I mean, we didn't have we didn't put kale chips in the stockings at Christmas, did we? That would be wrong. Yes, that's that's an American. We'll have some reaction to what we just heard from Dr. Michael Brown in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. How conservatives can win again. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's get some reaction to the conversation we just had with our good friend, Dr. Michael Brown. Again, you can check out his radio show, The Firing Line, uh, which I'm sure is on some of the same stations we're on every single night. Uh, You can also uh, get his new book, Breaking the Stronghold of Food. What did he say that stood out to you? Todd, I'll start with you. We, had a, we can talk to food stuff later on, but I'm more interested in your take on his big picture view about where the country is at culturally, some of the theological conversations we had with the way certain elements of evangelicalism have, have inextricably, it seems, in the eyes of the unbelieving American public, linked the character of God and with Donald Trump and the pluses and minuses of that. What, did, what was Michael's reactions or what were his reactions to my questions along those lines that uh, that you thought were the most interesting? Well, we start. He started off saying that it's undeniably true that it's better to have Donald Trump in there than Hillary Clinton. And then the rest of the conversation was spent with you guys agreeing over and over again that the way many Christians and conservatives got him there was very, very problematic. So, not to disagree with him, but to play devil's advocate because I agree. Uh, it, uh, the last couple months of not having Hillary in there have truly felt like a blessing. But uh, we're, we cannot be irrevocably sure that it is better to have Donald Trump in the long term. We, we just can't. We have, we have no—this is a roulette wheel, and if anybody tells you differently, uh, they're lying. And I don't mean Hillary Clinton would be better, but again, uh, the, the tough medicine that we may have had to have taken— might have actually been quicker via Hillary than Donald Trump. I'm just proposing it. I don't even agree with myself as I say it, but I, <laughs> we, we need to be careful in how, we, in how we lionize this guy at all. What I hear you saying is we cannot be afraid to ask ourselves the questions we don't want to have to answer, even if those questions are without merit and, don't have, and, and are full of bunk. Just our willingness to even ask them and consider them is how we don't become like that which we loathe. Is that what I hear you saying? Kim, what do you think? Well, one of the things that stood out to me was just the idea that it was the sovereign hand of God that put Donald Trump in the White House. And can we not agree then that it was also the sovereign hand of God that put Obama in the White House? I mean... We have to have this understanding what sovereignty of God actually means. And then we also have to know that, um, I like the other point, don't make Donald Trump into King Jesus. 
or Saint Trump or, you know, any other number of things that um, kind of deifies him. Um, I do like the idea that he's encouraging people to come alongside him and make sure they point him to the true Jesus. We're just going to be involved, I, I think, in just a perpetual game of, of whiplash during this presidency yeah. where we're turning. The, the progressives are crazy over there. Now toggle over and Trump cult is absolutely saying the silliest thing in defense of this man. And back and forth it goes. It and that be. speaks to what you said earlier. But is that perfect cover for the GOP machine to just be doing what it's always been doing? I think that, you know... One of the mysteries of God's sovereignty is, you know, and let me put it in another context. Something I heard recently about college recruiting I thought was brilliant. And I heard a former coach say on the radio, you know, on a show I was listening to on Sirius XM, it was Rick Neuheisel, actually, so I'll give him credit. And Skippy Neuheisel said, you know, in recruiting, what kills you is not the kids you don't get, but the kids that you do. I Meaning, it's not the big stars you were in on that you missed on. But it's the kids that you thought were going to be good, and you bring them in, and they don't ever develop. Those are the ones that really hurt you, okay? I bring that up because I think it fits into the context of this conversation. We often assume God's sovereignty is worked out by when he chooses to act. Rarely do we consider that God's sovereignty is worked out by when he chooses not to. You know what I'm trying to say? Oh, absolutely. We we have a tendency to look at this one-dimensionally. And we don't know the future. You're talking about God's permissive will. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I just didn't want to get you know into too much theological terminology. Well, it's not eschato- eschatology or but, anything. But but that's you know when you see the parade happening at the start, in the middle, and at the end, all at the same time, you are given a vantage point that those of us who are merely standing on the curb watching it go by, one marching band or one float at a time, do not have. And sometimes it is the act of sovereignty to not act. So, for example, do I think it is possible that God may have said, listen, if this is the one you guys really want, okay. Now, and and then maybe maneuvered in a way to allow that to happen, sure. But it may not be because it's to your benefit. It may be to teach you a lesson. You know, maybe America needed a president like Obama to fully realize the full Monty of progressive utopian scamology and to have to actually live it and feel it. And now maybe the other side needs to learn that, you know, politicians make for poor idols. Or maybe he will be a Cyrus type of figure. We don't know. That's why you have faith. You're listening to Steve Dace. Liberty's Bat Signal, the Steve Day Show. All right, I want to continue on the conversation we were just having because my fear is that if we move on to something else, there are some dangling participles out there and some loops that need to be closed, okay? Because this is, some, I think, some serious subject matter. I don't, I'm not sure how many subjects could be more important than discussing amongst ourselves how much the most powerful being in the universe chooses to impose his will or influence our own self-will uh, in, in how we live our lives. All right? So, you know, when Paul goes to a place called Mars Hill in the New Testament, he says something very intriguing. He says that the God of this world, 
or, or he says that God has decided where everyone will live and for how long. He is asserting the, the, the sovereignty of God right, to a group of Greek philosophers. Now, we extrapolate that point to the time in which we live. That God has decided that we will live here in a nation that has a, a level of self-determination that heretofore no other nation on earth had had up until the point that we were created. And other nations have tried to emulate across the globe in the last 200 plus years. Now, the assumption would be God gave you this freedom to use it, right? Yes. But again, we go back to the question we just had with God's sovereignty. I'm going to try not to make everybody's head hurt here with the paradoxical philosophy we're about to discuss. But, but sometimes the key, the key to understanding your free will and its role in the universe in accomplishing something good in this life is to not use it. Sometimes it is just as righteous not to act as it is to act. Just as we discussed that sometimes God exercises his sovereignty by allowing something to happen and not imposing his will because he knows what will happen either way. And that's how he can make that promise that he makes in the book of Romans. All things work together for the glory of God and for those called according to his purposes. Because he has that sovereignty, he gets to keep that promise. He sees what we do not see and cannot. You know, when we pray at our dinner table at night, I try to mention when we say grace at the dinner table, I try to thank God in front of the kids for the things he does for us that we don't even know of and we could never know of. For the times that he is imposed for us on things that we didn't understand or denied us the things that we wanted at the time for our own good. Because I want our children to see that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. That God is good when he gives you what you want and he is good when he does not. Because a God that would not spare even his own son can be trusted to do what's best for you. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying, be still and know yes. that I am. Yes. You know, it's funny. When the, when the Israelites come to the bank of the Red Sea, right, and, and Moses has brought them out into the desert, led them on this massive exodus, and they hear the rumbling coming over the, mountain, coming over the hills, and it's Pharaoh's chariots. And they know they're not, these guys are like Klingons. They don't take prisoners. Well, the old Klingons. They don't take prisoners, right? So they know what this means. And they're, and, and they're up against this open sea, and they're, and, they're, and they're hemmed in between an open sea and the most in, imposing, conquering armada on this planet at this point in human history. And they're losing it. Who wouldn't lose it? Right? You'd be losing it. What do we do? You're panicking. It, this is, I always tell our kids, when, it, when you see dad panic, that's when it's okay to panic. Dad would panic. What do we do? And Moses says what to the Israelites at this point? Stand still and wait for the salvation of the Lord. Moses does not know yet what will happen. Moses does not know that the sea will part. Moses does not know this. But he has seen enough evidence in what God has done to get them to this point to assert, hey, this guy, he seemingly had this whole thing figured out up until this point. I mean, what's easier to believe? That he's got one more trick up his sleeve here, or he brought us all the way out here just to die. That's just, that just seems mind-numb to me. So the easier call is, let's just hang out, because whatever he's thinking up next, if you thought what you've already seen up until this point was pretty good, all those plagues and everything else, if what you thought up until this point was pretty good that you saw, wait until you're about to see what happens next. 
I'm grabbing the tubo corn. Let's wait and see what happens. And one of the greatest moments in human history takes place. I think that we have, we have misunderstood what freedom really means. You know, when Jesus sits in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's about to be arrested and heading into his torture, he, he gives an interesting prayer. Now, this is God. If you're a Christian, you believe Jesus right now, he is God in human form. And he prays, not my will, but your will. See, we put so much emphasis on free will. And I get it. We've been debating this for hundred. This has been debated in the Protestantism since the Council of Dort and Calvinism and, uh, and Arminianism. And then you've got the old debates between Catholic humanists and the reformers. And this goes back to Augustine. Are we single predestination or double predestination? This has been a debate that has raised, that is, that is raged in, in the faith from the days of its inception. And I'm fine having the debate, but I, I wonder sometimes if we're having the wrong one. That the question is not between God's will and free will. That the question isn't, how much of my free will am I, does God allow me to use? And can I trust him to clean up the mess that I've made? I think sometimes we're almost like teenagers who say to their parents, if I, still do, if I do this, will you still love me? If I wreck the car, will you still love me, right? We, we have those quick conversations with your teenagers now. You had them, our parents had them with us when we were teenagers. I think that's the wrong conversation. That a life of faith isn't about navel-gazing over what is the, where is the line between my free will and God's sovereignty. That it's not about our free will. It's about his will. That when we become believers, we now have the freedom to do God's will. We no longer have our own sin standing in the way of us doing and becoming what God called us to do and be. That's, that's the goal. That we got it wrong. That when, instead of sitting here and writing books and ripping each other to shreds, I mean, how many, is, does God play duck, duck, damn with people's souls? Does he just look through history and know who chooses them of his own free will? Are there ages of accountability? These are all traditions and ideals and philosophies that we have largely invented amongst ourselves in order to assuage our own consciences around things we don't get, understand, and can't compute. And maybe that whole debate is null and void. Maybe the real question isn't between free will and God's will. Maybe it's about doing his will. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. You cannot stop him. You can only hope to contain him. This is Steve Dace. All right, I went off on a bit of a theological tangent there. I don't typically do on this show. I try not to. One, I'm not a theologian. I just stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Heck, I've never even saved a bunch of money on my car insurance from Geico before. Okay, so I'm just a guy on the radio that... It's amazing when people put a microphone in the front of your face. They think either immediately you're really dumb or really smart, when maybe neither one is true. You might just be a normal guy with a microphone in front of his face. (laughs) So all your weaknesses and strengths are the same as everybody else's. They just get amplified. But I want to get, you know, there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. So I'd like to get what you guys, what your, your reaction to whatever it was I was just trying to say a few minutes ago. 
I thought it was fantastic. The idea to refocus away from free will versus God's will into, you know, using your faith as you exercise doing his will. Right. I think that was that was well said. And um, I think it would be. I mean, I have this uh, debate about whether or not denominations is actually biblical. So I would love it if we could actually just do this. Can we just not agree to faithfully walk out our faith? That segment is why Paul, not, not as some rhetorical flourish, but why he so persistently begins his letters with Paul, a slave to Jesus Christ. And it's a conversation I'm now having with uh, my oldest daughters, 13 and 11. God is, now he gives us gifts, so he wants us to use them. He wants us to ch- practice charting a course for our own life. But is that course enslaved to God? Or is it just a course chosen entirely arbitrarily of God? And then you fit shoehorn God in to say, can you help me out with this? That's not how this works. Mm, right. That's beautiful. We We just, we have this American compulsion, I think, because of, the shoe leather that we built this country with. So there's this notion that if we're not doing something, it means we're doing nothing. Sometimes not doing something is doing something. And so there's this idea that every time I have something, therefore I must do something with it. I think that's an American notion. Except God gives us all kinds of things he doesn't just want us to use indiscriminately. Right? We have sex, which is good and fun and pleasurable. Should we just, whenever we have a compulsion or a sexual attraction, should we act on it every single time, guys? Every time? No. No! So then, so then there, there's times to not use what God has given us, right? I think the same thing applies to voting. Maybe that was the case in this election. Maybe it wasn't. But the idea that, we should, that there would never be a choice so bad that we can't possibly engage in that is not a biblical notion. That's not a Christian notion. That's an American notion. That is this, but some, sometimes God chooses, uses his sovereignty by not acting. And sometimes we use our freedom by not acting as well. And that's how we emulate him. That's all I'm trying to say. I, I, think, I think we need to be very careful not to assume, just as our friends on the left like to do, that everything works the way that we think it does or the way that we want it to. That's all I'm suggesting. Hour three is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here tonight on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. This is the Steve Day Show. And don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. We're going to go inside. When I think for conservatives, it might be the most crucial story of the first couple of weeks of uh, the Trump administration, and that is the confirmation of Jeff Sessions for Attorney General. We're going to go inside that story here at the bottom of the hour, but first, it's time for three questions. 
We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It is that time of night when, this week at least, Kim will get to set the agenda. Aaron is off on some Harry uh, Potter... Hodge, uh down in Florida for the next uh, several days. So Kim will preside over three questions. She'll get to ask us any three questions she wants. Kim, I don't know if you know the rules or not, but you can ask anything at all, particularly since we're past the safe harbor hour, so there is nothing off limits. <laughs> but you have to, there is one rule, you have to answer the same questions you ask us. That actually, that rule does limit the questions I want to ask. <laughs> okay, so this is designed to get the listeners thinking about... Um, Knowing you a little bit better, your psyche, what it was like you growing up. Oh boy, are you sure are you sure America is I think they're ready for is, it. Is ready for this. They okay. want it. All right. Posters. What kind of poster did you have on your wall in your bedroom? Uh give me an age. You know, you Because it would have been different at different ages. Whatever one you want to uh, reveal. Um you know, for me, first of all, we moved a lot when I was a kid, so I had to be careful about, you know, putting too much stuff on the walls because I went to 11 different elementary schools, K through 6, because we moved around so much. My dad did construction, my stepdad, and we were coming out of the Carter economy. And so, it was, you know, different areas of the country were kind of booming. And so we had to move sometimes on a whim. Uh, so when I was little, I didn't do a lot of that stuff uh, just because we couldn't, we might move in six months. When we finally settled down in Michigan when I was probably around 11 or 12 years old is when I felt free to go ahead and do that i always had i used to always cut out from uh, the uh, grand rapids press newspaper i would always <laughs> cut out the detroit tigers block schedule right and i'd keep track of their record you know because not all the games were on tv back in those days i'd either listen to them on the radio or any hardwell put me to bed a lot as a kid growing up at night so i'd always have that up on my wall uh, you know, Michigan uh, football stuff, uh, Detroit Pistons, Lions stuff. Um, I went through the uh, the, uh, the I went through a, a phase with the uh, Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit calendar, my pubescent phase. And I remember my mom came in one day and she didn't say anything. I just it was uncomfortable. All right, and so those never went back on the wall again after that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I used to have a really sweet, in fact, I still had this when Amy and I got married, and then it just, we moved once, and it got ruined, and I had to ditch it, which crushed me. I had this really sweet Zeppelin poster, and it was massive, all right? That was an oil, it was like a painting, and it included the lyrics to the last stanza of Stairway to Heaven on it, and man, it was, it was legit. That was kind of one of my big things. Um, and then for uh, several years, I had um, the posters to all the Star Wars movies. And then those got lost. And then after we got married, I started scrummaging around, you know, theater stores and things of that nature. And sometimes movie theaters would have get rid of posters. And I was able to, over the course of many several years, buy all the original posters again. Wow. And then I held them, I, I kept them wrapped up until I got my man cave in the house that we live in now. And if you go to my man cave now, you'll see on one of the big walls is all of the original posters to all seven movies, including the original trilogy. So, Todd. There's no way I can compete with that. Uh, I think 
There was Robin Yount and Paul Molitor, a Milwaukee Brewer fan is at various points, probably James Lofton up there. Uh, as I got older and got into skiing, I think there were some kind of uh, ski-scape sort of mountainous uh, things like that. But my, see, I, I was very random and haphazard. I didn't have like some sort of vision quest about what my cave was going to look like. If I happened to find something or or like Steve found something in insert, I might put it up there. But, you know, it was, you could just as often find almost bare walls, I think, as I cycled through. Well, you know, for mine, um, I never did the teen idol thing, you know, but I did have this one poster that was the entire door in my childhood bedroom, and that was um, Dr. J with uh, the 76ers. Nice. Right there for a lot longer with the, than he with probably should With the fro or froless? Oh, he totally had the fro. Totally had the fro? Yeah. Nice. So I had that for a lot longer than I'd like to um, admit. Can we go to the second question? Yes. All right. Um, do you remember your first romantic kiss? Uh, barely. Uh, I remember it was a gal named Jennifer... Uh, we were at an, I don't remember her last name. We were at an eighth grade makeout party. I remember that. I was a little shy and embarrassed about making out in the same room in this, in the gal's house that we had the party and where the parents were there, but didn't chaperone us. I was a little, so we went for a walk and Days after hours and, and we, <laughs> I rem, all I remember is we, st- is we started to kiss in this park at night and my mom Drove by, it would drove over because <laughs> nice. it's the first time I went to one of these parties, and so they were yeah. they wanted to make sure I was okay. And they actually drove right by. My mom and my little brother were in the car driving right by in the as, as I was in the park with this gal. And so I remember being extremely embarrassed by that, but that's about all I can remember of it, Todd. Yeah, it, it took me a little long. I don't think it was until my uh, fall of junior year or something like that. Yeah, just. Steady girlfriend, usual stuff. I remember like it was yesterday. That was that that was hot. Seriously, was, that was. I amazing. want you to know right now. People are all over America are fanning <laughs> like, themselves. What was that at the at the? At this is conservative the, Christian radio. I thought I totally where people have a lot of kids. <laughs> yes. Right? Oh, I've gotten better at it now. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Go ahead, Jim. Um, his name is Danny Anderson, and I remember making this pact with him that you have to show me that you physically have the strength that's worthy of a kiss. And so he had to get on one side of the monkey bars and I had to get on the other. And we had to come to the middle without falling and then give a kiss and then go back without falling. You were a handful even back then. We were like five years old or six. Even (laughs) then she put impossible standards on the men around her. Even then, yes. Okay, third question. Describe your first car. Oh boy. My first car was a 76 Ford Granada with a vinyl top that was totally ripped to shards. <laughs> uh, it only had, no, we did have an FM and an AM radio in there because I do remember that now. Uh, the interior was actually fairly well kept up, was quite nice. But uh, that was the first car that I ever got. I was a, a junior in high school. Uh, my parents bought it for me. It was for like four or 500 bucks. I remember that. I don't remember what happened to it. My second car was a 78 Dodge Omni. Then in my senior year, my friends mocked, used to make fun of me because the starter went out. And so my stepdad, Dave, uh, he had some saving graces, and one of them, which dude was like a MacGyver when it came to fixing stuff. He figured, now, nowadays, electric starts are like in all the new cars. 
He figured out a way to make this thing start electrically, so I would just turn the key, hit this electric thing, there'd be a spark, and the car would start. And my friends used to mock me all the time for having this car that didn't st- that started like this and everything else. And now, of course, that's the technology that everybody uses those electric starts in the new cars they have nowadays. It sounded like at any given point in time that car could blow up as well as well, start. It sounded like a catch yes, fire. Yes, and maybe. But I, I like to live dangerously. Yes, uh, I had a white Ford Escort, and after that thing uh, went south, we upgraded to a blue. Ford Escort. Wow. Nice. <laughs> um, I nothing. There was nothing. Nothing shoddy about it. Nothing unique about it. You can remember, other than just the make and the model. They, they were just solid cars. You know, stick shift. That was important. I and I've, right. I. Right. I could drive a stick shift as early as just about any of my friends. My Omni was a stick shift. The first brand new car I ever bought. I took the money I got for my senior graduation in high school. And bought a 2000, or I'm sorry, a 1993 Dodge Shadow that was black with a silver interior because I was a big Raider fan growing up as a kid. And uh, that was a stick shift. I can't tell you how many miles I put on that the first year. We just drove that everywhere because it was a new car. Well, you know, the stick shift now is like an anti-theft device. So many people don't know how to even drive that. Um, My first one was a silver silver Camaro. Um, A boyfriend didn't want it anymore and just gave it to me. Your first car was a silver Camaro. Yeah, men were just giving you cars. Well, it was terrible. Feats of strength. What happened is this guy said, "Listen, if you don't make me do that damn monkey bar thing again, I'll just give you the car." (laughs) (laughs) Just gave her a silver Camaro. And the police always liked to stop me because they thought it was him driving. So it didn't turn out to be that great. There are several uncomfortable follow-up questions to this conversation. We are now <laughs> we are not having. Yes, more in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. For critical thinkers only. The Steve Day Show. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about this. An excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. And this is the Nightly Buzz here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This is where we take a look back at some of the stories we didn't have a chance to get to earlier in the show, because even in three hours, particularly given how long-winded I am, it does, we can't get to everything that is worthy of covering. So here are some of those headlines that are the buzz where you are. We respond with the hot takes. And I'm going to take over for Aaron this week while he's gone. I've selected a few stories that I want us to react to. Let's begin with the much ballyhooed report about Russian interference into the last election. Russian President... According to The Hill, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered a widespread influence campaign intended to help elect Donald Trump, the intelligence community said, in a declassified report that came out over the weekend. Quoting from the report, Russia's goals were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Hillary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency. We further assess Putin and the Russian government developed a clear preference for President-elect Trump. We also assess Putin and the Russian government aspired to help President-elect Trump his election chances when possible when possible by discrediting Secretary Clinton and publicly contrasting her unfavorably to him. Unquote. The Hill describes this document as a, quote, bombshell 
detailing the intelligence community's findings, but then it says this right after calling it a bombshell. It provides little in the way of forensic evidence backing up its assessment. What kind of an editor allowed that paragraph to come out in the paper? (laughs) On one hand, you say this is a bombshell document with details, and then in the very same paragraph, it says it provides little in the way of evidence backing up what it claims. In my experience, that would be all of the editors, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the fake news we're talking about? That just paragraph sounds like, guys, it sounds like they are telling you we just published some fake news. We did. Uh, now, the intelligence community says it can't provide that evidence, citing the need to protect sources and its methods. Okay. Uh, quoting again from the report, while the conclusions in this report are all reflected in the classified assessment, the declassified report does not and cannot include the full supporting information, including specific intelligence and sources and methods. Unquote. All right. Now, let me say this. I get that we have to protect sources. I totally understand that. Okay. But... It does seem to be sort of a convenient out at the same time. Well, I'd like to tell you what my evidence for this being true is, but I can't because it would it would danger national security. Because she's my girlfriend in Niagara Falls. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, I mean, now listen, if, if those of us who were involved in this election, we saw things on our social media accounts. If you, if you are in the public eye like I am to some degree, I've never seen before. The amount of, of Twitter bots and, and, and fake accounts... And, 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 and fake conspiracy sites that emerged in this election cycle, I think we all know, given how ragtag Trump's organizational operation was, he didn't have the wherewithal to create these things himself. Would we all stipulate to that? Yes. So they must have came from somewhere. All right? Do I think it is entirely plausible that Russia did preferred Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton? Uh, sure. Uh, do I think it's possible that they could have been the source for some of the skullduggery we saw on social media and some of those things? To some degree, I think that's absolutely possible. But what's, what, But this is now, and I say this as someone that in the past has been critical about, not wa- about people on our own side not wanting to look into this. We should absolutely want to know if a foreign government was intervening in our elections. And I'm old enough to remember when we would have called that an act of war. Okay. And I understand James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, testified under oath that Russia, that Russian, that Russia absolutely tried to impose in, on, our, on our election. I doubt that. I, can't, I don't know that that's ever been testified under oath in Congress, ever, that a, a foreign government tried to interfere in American presidential election. However, James Clapper also testified under oath that Benghazi happened because of that stupid video. Okay? So why am I bringing these things up? Because... When you have a systemic collapse of ethics and standards in your culture, systemic means, what does systemic mean, guys? Systemic means that throughout. It doesn't mean certain sectors are immune. Just because someone got a government badge doesn't mean that somehow when they go home at night, they they, they are immune from the trials and temptations and tribulations that beguile the rest of we mere mortals. So while I think this is something to be investigated, while I'm completely uncomfortable with the Russian bromance stuff with Trump and the Putin bromance crap, I'm totally uncomfortable with it. Watching Sean Hannity tweet over the weekend, yeah, we should make Russia great again. I don't know what the hell that is. Okay? While I'm completely uncomfortable with that, this idea that we automatically take for granted whatever these people say, as if they're infallible, I'm as equally uncomfortable with that too. You guys' thoughts. 
Well, you know, one of my predictions for the new year is that in the first year of his presidency, Donald Trump will go on a, a guided tour of Russia <laughs> with Vladimir Putin. And as, as concerned as the Democrats say they are about this, in, in terms of the ones that are just pure, brazen political hacks and not true patriots, the irony is they're actually hoping that happens. And they are hoping there is, while they complain that there's actually meat on this bone. Because just like Trump needs a foil... They need that foil. Sure, if Because sure. if it's not true, pretty quick, it's just they're the people with tinfoil hats. You know, the whole thing that I, I wish people were talking more about, and I'm, and I'm going to point right to the left, the just vast number of bombs that Obama has dropped over the course of eight years, and, and uh, never have we declared war in that whole time. And I look at that and I think, why are we not talking about that? Why are we not talking about what are we doing in the Middle East? What is what is um, Russia doing over there in Syria? And why are we involved? And where's that red line that Obama wanted? And I mean, there's so much more that we need to discuss. And this whole idea of we've already seen that Putin did not in um, do anything with our voting machines. Okay, so. Yeah, they tried to influence our elections, and we should care about that. They, they tried but, to, they, they, but they, shouldn't we? They also, tried to influence what people did with those machines once right. they got there. That is what the claim is, anyway. Well, and so why shouldn't we care about what we have done in other countries as well? I mean, could we not say that America has tried to interfere in other people's elections? I mean, we're not being honest about what we have done or what. Try, well, tried. The Democrats tried to tilt the Israeli election. Just there we not, go. Not yes, right. yes, yes, that happened. Is, that did happen. Yeah, I mean, Obama I mean, injected himself directly into Netanyahu's re-election a couple of years ago. Yes. I think that, I mean, clearly there have been times we were right to impose in another government's elections and times we made mistakes. So we have to be careful drawing moral equivalencies across the board as well. But that's where, you, what's your standard? What is the standard for what is right and wrong? Is the standard when it hurts my guy or my party, it's bad, and when it helps them, it's good? Thank you. That's that. That's the problem here. And I think that is... And Now, why in the world, people are going to ask, why in the world would a strong man like Putin prefer a guy with a stronger personality like Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton? And I don't know the answer to that. I, I, my, if I could guess, I don't know what you guys think about this, if I could guess... That really what Putin is looking for is chaos, uncertainty, because with more uncertainty, that gives them more of a chance to assert themselves. And Trump, of course, is much more of a wild card, as with Hillary Clinton, you pretty much know what she would do, both good and bad. You're listening to Steve Dace. You'll have to pry this microphone from his cold, dead fingers. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Ken Blackwell is here with a senior fellow at Family Research Council. He's also on the Trump transition team, and he's got a column up today at the Washington Times talking about what I think is one of the most important battles for conservatives uh, in the new administration. And one of the things you heard me talk about from the day after Trump got elected is there are certain cabinet appointments, in my view, that are more important than the others. I think there are three and three or four chief of staff, defense, state 
and Department of Justice that have more power, including a bully pulpit, than the others. And so maybe those are positions where conservatives should focus more of their attention than on who the undersecretary of labor is. You're not going to get everything you want anyway, and there's only so much time in the day. So we were very excited to see a culture warrior like Jeff Sessions get that appointment. But of course, when you put somebody in that position that has the power to undo a lot of the damage the likes of Eric Holder did the last several years and Loretta Lynch, the left is not going to go quietly. So his confirmation hearings begin, I believe, this week. Ken, is that correct? That, that is absolutely correct. Uh, his confirmation is the hearing is tomorrow. Uh, and just to underscore what you just said, uh, dogs don't bark at park cars. So it's the reason why the left is yapping and, and barking. And that's because they know that uh, uh, Jeff Sessions is a serious agent of change, and he's one that will bring us back to a respect for the rule of law. Uh, and he also understands that uh, those men and women who put their lives on the line, uh, on the front lines, uh, our law enforcement and safety officials, um, need to be supported because they are at the, uh, the tip of the spear of justice in our country. I want to begin looking at this with a story that we have up at Conservative Review today. And I'm just going to mm-hmm. share the opening paragraph, and I want to get your reaction, Ken. Senator Jeff Sessions' confirmation is shaping up to be a political circus act, as sources indicate Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley of Iowa is expected to announce a Senate a special panel to, quote, examine Senator Sessions' history on civil rights, unquote. But in reality, the panel will only serve as a platform for smears, rumor, and spin, and that this is uh, described in the article that we have up on Conservative Review as a as a capitulation to Senate Democrats. Uh, members of the transition team apparently spoke with uh, us at Conservative Review anonymously, saying that they were very concerned about this. Are you concerned about this? Look, I'm I'm, I'm concerned about any step that will try to make Jeff Sessions uh, uh, a floor mat, you know, a, a doormat. Uh, the, the, we're not going to stand by and let folks paint a false narrative of his. His 20 years of service uh, in, in the Senate. Uh, he's been a chief architect of bipartisan uh, action, uh, and that is not only to be respected, it's to be recognized. Uh, those folks who who have applauded Jeff Sessions, I, I have photo after photo uh, with John, uh, you know, Senator Sessions and Congressman John Lewis and other icons of the civil rights movement. Uh, all of a sudden, they've done this Dr. Jekyll and Hyde transformation uh and now they're they're leading the attack on jeff session it will not it will not stand we're just we're not going to let anybody create a false narrative of a, of a guy who has an outstanding record in terms of supporting the constitution of the united states and its application uh for all citizens regardless of ethnicity uh and and, and race you mentioned congressman john lewis well, first of all, why a senator is appointing a congressman to a Senate panel, I don't understand. But I guess that's why they have all their funky little parliamentary uh, rules. But Conservative Review is also reporting that he is expected to be on the panel. Now, didn't him and, and uh, Attorney General Sessions, didn't they march in, at the 50th anniversary of Selma together like just a year ago? Oh, oh yeah. I, oh, absolutely. He, he, they grasped hands, locked arms, uh, prayed together, marched together. Uh, you know, so... John Lewis, if he others anything other than what he did on those occasions about Senator Sessions' willingness to, to stand tall on the Constitution and those rights that are guaranteed each American, regardless of race or ethnicity, uh, would be a, a 
total falsehood uh, and, a, and an exercise in duplicity. So you know we we are we are ready uh, to under you know to let the the confirmation process you know take its natural course, but we will not allow it to be turned into a circus. Ken Blackwell is with us here on the Steve Day Show. He was the first statewide elected official who was black in Ohio history. He was both their Secretary of State and State Treasurer, uh, former gubernatorial candidate there, former mayor of Cincinnati. He's now a senior fellow at the Family Research Council. He's also on the Trump transition team. And we're talking with him tonight about the upcoming battle, the confirmation battle, over over Senator Jeff Sessions to be the next Attorney General and hopefully undo a lot of the damage that was done at the Department of Justice under Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder over the last eight years. So what about these charges from the left of racism? What's the actual record there where Senator Sessions is concerned? We're going to let Mr. Blackwell give us some details on that when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. This show is dedicated to bacon every day. The Steve Day Show. And we're back here with Ken Blackwell, Senior Fellow at the Family Research Council, also a key leader on the Trump transition team. He's got a piece up today in the Washington Times about the left going after Senator Jeff Sessions in his uh, forthcoming battle uh, to be confirmed as Attorney General of the United States, which begins tomorrow in the United States Senate. Your article in the Washington Times, Ken, goes through a pretty exhaustive list of some things about Jeff Sessions we probably didn't know. So, Ken, if you could uh, just take a few seconds here for our audience, because, of course, I mean, this guy, the reason we conservatives want him, we know him as a law and order guy. We know him as a guy that's going to stand up for the rule of law and our national sovereignty. But but there is a record there to answer some of the, the charges the left is making against him and, and race baiting and the like. Can you talk a little bit about some of those examples you cite in the Washington Times? Well, look, first let me just say, this is the ugly side of the confirmation process where uh, forces try to define or misdefine and then destroy a person of a, of a real established record. Um, now, he, if you, let me just take one instance there. He's been a, in the forefront of, of trying to bring some coherence to our criminal justice program. Uh, uh, Policies across the city uh, and across the nation, across the nation's cities uh, and states, uh, and, and and that has been uh, something that he has been applauded for uh, in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, and so, for now, uh, to, to have the left uh, try to define him as something as a as a racist uh, is is a, a real frontal attack on him because he is conservative, because he is white, uh, and because he's from the South. Uh, and that sort of uh, racism, that sort of bigotry cannot stand. We cannot stand. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, as our president, uh, is there because he didn't treat middle America, he didn't treat the South as flower country. Uh, he, he understood that this country was more than just the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, and as a consequence, he had a dramatic victory, uh, electoral college victory, uh, that says that here is a president that will speak for the people. He connects with folks. And he has chosen someone uh, in Jeff Sessions uh, that will carry out his 
his policies as the uh, attorney general. You mentioned in here Sessions has a record of working on legislation uh, dealing with issues involving race with the likes of Dick Durbin, Ted Kennedy, uh, Richard Blumenthal. These are not necessarily shrinking violence on the left here. No, absolutely. And that's why I'm saying it's just such a blatant contradiction for them now to say that Jeff Sessions is anything uh, but a seasoned leader, uh, a person who respects the, the Constitution and who respects the Constitution's application to the rights of all citizens, regardless of color, ethnicity, or, or religion. I know this is hard because right now you're in the midst of a of, of helping to spearhead a transition of a presidential administration. But as best as we can can give in the moment, can, let's take some partisan blinders off. And is it how are we going to be able to address these issues without immediately going to the race card on really either side? Although it does seem as if nowadays, predominantly, that seems to be the 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 mo of the left. There there seems to be no argument that cannot include some sort of racist, bigoted, uh, you know, framing of the opposition as if there's no middle ground between what you believe or what the other side believes. There's nothing between I just disagree with you or I'm a, you know, troglodyte bigot. How do we function as a society like that, Ken? Look, Steve, we we have to start by realizing in just 240 years, uh, we have, in fact, become the most diverse, the most democratic, the most prosperous nation in all of human history. As Lincoln said, our union is not perfect, but it is perfectible. It is perfectible by people who, in fact, understand that we, our fundamental human rights, are not grants from government. They are gifts from God. Therefore, we need a leader like Donald Trump to surround himself with leaders like Jeff Sessions and Betsy DeVos, who, in fact, will say, and Ben Carson, who will say, at the end of the day, we must put a harness on the growth and reach of government to optimize individual liberty. Uh, we understand and recognize our families as being the incubator of liberty, not government. Uh, and so that's what we're that's what we're getting back to. Uh, and 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 I think people of goodwill want to get back there, and we will in fact take them there in how we comport ourselves in the public square. I. I, I Thank you to Ken Blackwell. No, Ken, you got to go. It's late anyway. You guys are trying to get a presidency uh, launched here in about 10 days. Thank you for joining us. That's Ken Blackwell, senior fellow at the Family Research Council. He's also one of the leaders of the Trump transition team. Let me throw this question to you guys. How do we have an honest conversation about these issues that doesn't immediately revert to race baiting? Is it possible? Is it happening anywhere that you can think of? I don't know. I'm asking. It doesn't seem possible, and I fear that they're going to come out against Jeff Sessions. If they if they come out against Jeff Sessions and it doesn't go well, well, big deal. They they move on and they get ready for uh, the the actual session uh, to to pursue whatever ends of uh, obstructing during Congress. But if they get a win on this first one, Jeff Sessions, as I understand it, is the first of nine this coming week. Mm-hmm. If it goes well for them, well, then game on for several more of them. So do you see a scenario where they just keep their powder dry? That doesn't seem the. I mean, that's the nature of your question. That's not what they do, Steve. I, well, I think it came. I think that scenario comes down to a follow-up question. How much of the fact that, they're, that, that, they, that race baiting is such a leading aspect of their 
of, of their messaging. How much of that is tactical? Because it's worked for them in the past, right? A lot of times people, it's, it's sent people scurrying in fear at the mere thought that they might be called a bad not, name. Not right. only has it worked, it's their A game, isn't well, it? Well, if, if, but how much of that is tactical and then how much of that is they truly see the world that way? I don't know that we know the answer to that question yet. I don't think we know the answer to that. But I'm really curious, you know, because we're from Iowa. What is Chuck Grassley doing? Is that true that he's going to have this special investigation into Senator? Is there some bad blood between those two? Well, there was a couple of years ago after the 2014 election. Sessions was actually in line to be the Judiciary Committee chairman. Ah. And McConnell and party leadership went over his head because they didn't want him in there actually vetting uh, and stopping Obama's nominees. They put Grassley in there, who's Iowa nice, who they knew would just rubber stamp everything so there wouldn't be any shutdowns or any confrontations. Okay. Now, I don't know if that is part of this or not, but it's certainly a bad look. You're listening to Steve Dace. is a force of nature. One of the most powerful storms ever to hit land. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here to wrap it up on a Monday here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. So what did we learn here this evening? Kim, I'll start with you. What did you learn? Well, I want to go to um, Melinda Byerly. Um, you remember she's the CEO from- all the way back to three hours ago when we first started the show right the condescension doesn't play well either from the left or the right and I think one of the ways that we can um, combat what she has said which is basically middle middle America is um, homophobic um, xenophobic you know just any other thing like that is just to show what they've done wrong right so for example San Francisco with the progressives running it you have a defecation map for visitors that go to San Francisco yeah, I posted right? this in the comment section to the link uh, to my column about this on Facebook uh, there is and you were you were the one that passed it along to me there is literally an article quote mapping San Francisco's sidewalk pooping problem right unquote. wait it's not friday yet this isn't sign of no, the apocalypse. This, is not. this is your 21st century progressive enlightenment this is what progressives can do to a <laughs> to a city and then you also look at um the san francisco chronicle said that california is 400 billion dollars in debt we do not want to emulate that that is not the way to freedom and so um i think we can go ahead and fight with truth the condescension that comes at us from the left that bit of theology in uh, hour two that we did was really cool. We've been talking right. on and off the air ourselves, and um, you've read emails about we should do more theology, and I can't argue with that. Uh, that hit me where I live. Uh, the notion of uh, various scriptural mantras that all of us say over and over to ourselves in the course of the day if we're living out the gospel. A slave to Jesus Christ is one of them. His will, not mine, be done. Uh, his will, not mine, be done. So. Uh, I thought that was an uh, excellent hour, and I say here, here for more. And secondly, Ken Blackwell, is, you've met him in person. I haven't. He seems like one of the coolest dudes. He does, doesn't ever. He? Is that true? Yeah, he's a smart guy, really well put together, and I think that uh, bringing him in as a part of the transition team, as one of the leaders on the transition team, was one of the smartest moves that they made. And I also think putting him out front 
uh, in defending Jeff Sessions also indicates that this is, uh, this is an appointment they think a lot about and are willing to defend and put a lot of credibility behind. How hard do you think the left's going to come after Sessions tomorrow? Um, I think it will look hard. But the reality is, I, I think we did an interview on this last week uh, with um, a gal with another uh, group whose name escapes me, but uh, who works on Capitol Hill, and pointed out that a lot of this is uh, saber-rattling, uh, astroturf activism in order to you know, uh, raise money off of their base, similar to fake you know, Tea Party groups on our side. So I think that's what a lot of this is. I, I think a lot of this is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But if I'm the Trump team, I take it very seriously. If for no other reason, it's a good trial run for later when it will be for real. Might as well get used to, uh, might as well get battle tested now. John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace.